This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, February 3rd, 2019, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. Our reading today comes from 1 Thessalonians 5, 19-28. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under the oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Well, thank you for being here this morning. I'm going to pray and get us right into it. So if you bow with me. Heavenly Father, we praise you. We praise you for your greatness and your goodness and your generosity and your grace. Lord, you are the one true God, the God of mercy, the God of grace. You do not give us what we deserve and you bless us with what we do not. About yourself, Lord, you say, you are the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation, Lord. We know how unfit we are, Lord, to serve you. You know better than we even do the depths of our depravity. You know the present brokenness that we live in, that we may hide from others and may even be self-deceived about ourselves. Lord, You know that in ourselves we have no ability, no power, no desire for Your glory, that apart from the warmth of Your Spirit, our hearts are cold. You know that we need Your grace. We need it in the morning, we need it in the evening, we need it all the time, and Lord, we are thankful that You give it to us freely in Christ. Thank You that we do not have to bring ourselves up to You, but that in Christ You come to us. Thank You for Your enduring patience with us, Lord. Thank You for faithfully rooting out the spiritual brokenness and rot in our lives and restoring us to Your image. Thank You, Lord, for the grace that comes through Your Word. Thank You, Lord, for the grace that comes through Your people by Your Word. Thank You, Lord, for the grace that comes in the trials that we would never choose. Thank You for Your grace. Father, continue to do Your work in us, in Your families and in Your church. May Your kingdom come into this world and may Your will unfold into our lives. I know how dangerous of a prayer that is, Lord. So I ask that you will ready us in our hearts to receive it as it does come. 
Jesus, remind us of Your grace. Remind us that the difficult things in our lives are the refining things. That they are the gifts that we would never choose, but that the very gifts that change us in the ways we need to be changed. And Holy Spirit, this morning I pray that You will apply Your Word to our hearts. That You will change us from the inside out. Move me out of the way. And please, speak the words that you need to speak. The words of conviction. The words of comfort. The words that will bring us to the cross where we find forgiveness and love and grace. It's in the name of our Lord and Savior we pray. Amen. So we are at the end of another series. And I'm always sad and happy about that fact because I get easily, uh, not bored, but tired of the same thing, and I want to move on to the next one. So we will be in 2 Thessalonians coming up. We will do three chapters in three sermons, and it's a lot about end times, and it should be exciting. It's kind of the uh, epilogue of this church after having received this letter, but we are now still in the first letter to the Thessalonians. Our series has been titled The Normal Christian Life, but as we have examined this letter, we have seen, I hope, something presented to us that is anything but normal. Because when Jesus saves somebody, they receive a new identity. They receive a new loyalty that's governing them and a new hope in a new destiny that's coming. Every salvation is a miracle of God. Even if you have the most boring testimony ever the fact that your heart was replaced, it was a piece of stone and a heart that beat after God was put in there, that you were dead and you became alive, that you were blind and now you see that what was darkness became light to you and what was foolishness became the very wisdom of God, that's a miracle. Every single one of us who believe in the name of Jesus is a miracle story. It's a story that a person has by grace surrendered self-rule and turned from their sin and received Jesus not just as Savior, but also Jesus as Lord. And if that is true, that's what happens. If Jesus becomes a Savior, not just a good teacher, not just a nice example, but He becomes Savior who rescued, me, rescued you from sin. And He becomes Lord where He is the one calling the shots in the life that He has bought with His blood. If that is true, then it follows that the normal, normal Christian life is going to look quite abnormal in this world. You're going to live according to an upside-down value system in a world that's upside-down. You're going to live in a way and think in a way, speak in a way that is countercultural, that is even counterintuitive sometimes. This is the normal Christian life. Now, according to Paul's letter, if we just take everything that we have looked at, every sermon that has been preached on all these verses, the character of this normal life sounds like this, and it's a long list. It's a resounding life. It's a shepherd life. It's a word-centered life. It's an afflicted life. It's a shared life. It's a life of purity. It's a love-loving life. 
It's a hope-filled life. It's a wakeful life or a sober-minded life. It's a patient life. And as we saw last week, it's a joyful, prayerful, thankful life. And that's a lot of things. I meet with a lot of people and many who claim to be obviously Christians. I spend time with them. We discuss the things of Christ, obviously. And many times as I'm sitting one-on-one with people, we're talking about struggles. And what I find is that many of those conversations I have, I hear a lot of believers either intentionally or inadvertently confessing that they feel like they have a lack of spiritual progress. With all those things I named, they think, I'm not doing really very well at any of those things. While they might not be totally disillusioned, there's a sense of disappointment in what has transpired since the day of their salvation. That what has happened or the maturity or lack thereof hasn't gone as they thought. Either stated or implied, there's this sense that like I'm not the person I think I'm supposed to be. I don't feel like the closeness to God that I once did. I feel like I should be further along than this. I'm sure that describes no one in here. I'm here to tell you that that's pretty normal. I hope that brings some comfort. See, implicit in those kinds of statements and those beliefs uh, is, I think, somewhat of a misunderstanding of the Christian faith. Even though Jesus did declare, it is finished on the cross, our salvation is only the beginning of our relationship with God. It's only the beginning. A relationship with God is not mechanical because God is not a robot. He's personal. And like all relationships with people, they grow and they deepen over time. And there's even struggles that that growth comes through. Spiritual maturity is a journey with peaks and with valleys. It has unexpected and even tragic turns, and it has unimaginable joys, but it's a journey. We are called Restoration Road Church, not just Restoration Church. We dialogued about that at one point. I doubt the elders even remember that. Well, should we just be called Restoration Church? And I said, no, we're going to keep road in there. Why? Because we're on a journey. We are restored in Christ spiritually. We are perfect in the eyes of God, but we are not perfect in this world. And I don't know how much convincing that's going to require, right? We don't arrive all that God has called us to be instantly or overnight. We don't. Restoration is a process. It's ongoing. And at times, it's often very incremental and slow. And that is normal. Paul ends his letter, I think, in an awesome way. And it's the kind of thing we read the ends of letters and we're like, eh, well, okay, we're done. Let's move on to the next one. If you turn to the very beginning of the letter, I want to, you to notice something. So 
Kind of like keep the beginning and the end together. I want you to look at verse 1. In verse 1 in this letter, which we preached a long time ago, the last four words of this, or five words of this first verse, right? The first verse is a greeting. It's Paul and Silvanus or Silas and Timothy. Hey, we're together. We're writing this letter. And then it says, grace to you and peace. Grace to you and peace. Now look at the end of his letter. Not only in verse 23 are we talking about the God of peace again, but the last words, the last verse, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The bookends of Paul's letter are grace. Starts with grace. Ends with grace. And our life is in between grace. Undeserved favor. I want us to be reminded as we look at a letter that has and feels like a lot of, be thankful, do this, do this of grace. Paul's going to remind his readers at the end here that to be faithful, yes, be faithful, pursue godliness, but he's going to emphasize that the faithfulness comes from what God is doing in us and not just what we are doing ourselves what God is doing in us. Or said a different way, God has saved us. And God is saving us. And God will save us. It's not just, I'm saved! Yes, you were saved. And God is saving you. And He will fully save you, if you will, bring you to full restoration in the end. We're in this in-between time. And that's a place of grace. Let's look at the first 19. Begin there as he tells us how this works out. He says, Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now, we stop there, and if you were to back up and take the first 18 verses of chapter 5, We've been in chapter 5 for a while. If you take those 18 verses, you would read about a dozen very specific instructions from Paul. About a dozen. And they read like a dad's spiritual to-do list, right? He calls himself a dad. He calls himself a mom as well in this letter. But it's like a spiritual to-do list for his kids. Stay awake. Be sober. Encourage one another. Respect your leaders. Be at peace. Admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient. Rejoice always. Pray always. Give thanks always. Wow! That's just in chapter 5. A lot of verbs. A lot of to-dos. Now he gives a couple to-don'ts. Right? And these two final admonishments, I, I, I want you to understand not to be read as two new commands on his list. As much as what he's trying to do is give you the means to which fulfill all the other commands that he has already given. Okay? This is the way you're going to fulfill all that God has called you to do. Essentially, Paul is going to state that the power 
to do all that he has described in this letter doesn't reside with you. It resides with the Holy Spirit, the most ignored person in the Trinity. The Holy Spirit. That's why he says, do not quench the Spirit and do not despise prophecies. So we need to understand the experience of the early church so we can understand these verses and how it applies today. So the early church enjoyed a unique outpouring of the Holy Spirit at its inception in Acts chapter 2. We went through that several months ago. But the Holy Spirit uniquely came in Acts chapter 2 and then throughout the apostolic age or with all the apostles still alive to the end of really the first century, its infancy was a very special time and I would argue a very unique time in the history of the church. In its infancy, we'll just call it, it didn't have obviously a complete copy of the Bible. It was still being written. They had the Old Testament. They had really none of the new as we see Paul writing it here in 1 Thessalonians. They had at that time the teachings of the apostles and Paul referenced that, what I taught and then obviously what he has written here. They also had what would be called prophets. So they had the apostles writing, if you will, for the church. Peter writing, John writing, uh, Matthew writing, right? All these guys writing, Paul writing, and then you had prophets in the church speaking. Many, if you read the book of Acts, are named. Different names are given up, like this prophet spoke this and whatnot. And prophets, similar to the Old Testament, were individuals chosen by God and moved by the Spirit to bring forth His words. And while the teachings of the apostles were received as authoritative, there were, at the gathering of the church, people who would have what they called the gift of prophecy, and they would speak for God, and then what was spoken would be evaluated by the leaders to say, is this actually God speaking? And they would accept that which was aligned with what they already knew as the truth, and they would reject that which was not. Those would be the prophets of the day. This was in the early church. And even though some of our charismatic brothers and sisters believe that God has continued that exact kind of gifting today, similar, if not the exact same it was in the early church, I would argue today we are very different in the season um, that we find ourselves. The distinctive difference between our time and when Paul is writing at this point in the early church era is that we have the complete canon of Scripture. We have the complete record, the written record of the apostolic teaching and the prophetic teaching of that time. The church, Paul will write in other letters, is founded on the apostles and the prophets' teaching which we now affirm as the complete and supreme and sufficient written Word of God. Meaning, we no longer accept that there are prophets and apostles comparable to that which was. These individuals at that time were instruments of direct revelation for a very unique time, but we would deny as a church that there is any new or continuing revelation that we would add or put on the same level as Scripture in our time. 
It's really important to understand this because that is not the same belief across the church. We would argue that in the history of the church, creeds are helpful, confessions are helpful, great sermons are helpful, but they are not authoritative like Scripture. So as you read this, something like, do not despise prophecies, it means something at this time, and then it means something for us today. At that time, you had guys literally speaking, and they would evaluate if this is true or not. Like, don't, don't not allow that. Don't dismiss that. Listen to it. And we would say the same thing today in this sense, because basically they're saying, listen to the Word of God, or at least that which proves to be the Word of God. So just because I'm up here and I say something, you have a responsibility to test what I say in the same sense, but your test is directing you towards the Scripture. They are called and we are called to test everything that is spoken or taught to make sure that it aligns with the Word of God that has already been spoken. The Apostle John commends us to do this. 1 John 4.1 John writes, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone into the world. If you've ever engaged with Mormons, which I do a lot, although they don't come to my door very often anymore. I probably have the big red X on my map, right? Don't talk to him. I'm very nice. I usually sit down in my white rocking chair in the front porch and I have my Bible and I just ask them more like, so, Lake Stevens, Washington, that's where you were sent. Like, didn't want Hawaii, whatever. And they're like, yeah. So I ask them about them and eventually we start talking about the Scripture. And eventually we start talking about Jesus. And eventually we get to a point where they can tell that I'm not going to believe what they believe. I eventually reveal at some point that I'm a pastor. Not, I don't lead with that. And then they say, well, I testify to you that Joseph Smith's a prophet of God. I testify to you. The Holy Spirit has told me this. I te-, and they go this big kind of script. So after they're done, they take a breath. I say, well, I testify to you, the Spirit of God has told me that everything you're doing and teaching is a lie, that you worship a demon Jesus, and that you are going to hell if you don't repent and believe in the true biblical Jesus. And I said, now what are we going to do? The Spirit's telling you one thing, and the Spirit's telling me another thing. Who's right? I said, let's open the Bible and see. And that's our test. Now, If you read further in John's letter, he gives us actually a pretty basic test. Like, how do you test what's being taught? And so, uh, just really quickly, um, simply it's three things. When someone speaks something, teaches something, reads something, whatever, we're testing it, like, first and foremost, does it affirm God's Word? Period. If it contradicts God's Word, it's false. Does it affirm God's Son. What do I mean by that? You read John, it says, does it affirm that Jesus is the Son of God? Fully divine? Jehovah Witnesses? Jesus is a creation? Michael the Archangel? Mormons? Jesus is the brother of Lucifer? A creation? Like, 
I see that you're wrong. Muslims have a Jesus. There's lots of Jesuses out there. Is it the biblical Jesus? And then does the teaching affirm God's Gospel? Does it teach that we are saved by grace through faith? Or does it say, well, you can believe in Jesus, but you better add all these things onto it. It's not really difficult to test as long as you know what you're testing for. And so when he says, do not despise prophecies for us, it's like, yeah, test everything and we should test it the right way to see if it actually affirms God's words, God's Son, and God's Gospel of salvation. It's important to understand that testing everything doesn't mean trying everything. It means evaluating everything compared to what we know is true. You may not know this, you may know this, but the word for test is, is actually speaking about the genuineness that you use for coinage. And they're trying to identify what is counterfeit and what is real. So today, there are people who evaluate whether counterfeit money and false, right? Like there's people that are trained. Do you know how they are trained? They don't study the counterfeit. They study the real thing. They get to know the real money so that when the counterfeit is presented to them, it's easy to identify. And so we spend our time delving into the truth, studying the truth, the genuine article, the real thing, and then when that which is false, when that which goes against God's Word, goes against God's Son, or goes against His Gospel, oh, that's false. That's not a Savior. That's not good news. That's not the biblical Jesus. That's not what the Bible teaches. We must understand that the Spirit of God, we talk about do not quench the Spirit and do not despise prophecies. The Spirit of God works with the Word of God. They work together. He is the author of the Word. This is how God speaks to us. Isn't it interesting how often we're like, I wish the Lord would just say something. I wish He would give me guidance. He has. That is not to suggest that God is not personal. It's not to suggest that God doesn't speak to us and lead us in the ways that is meant by some of those statements. But sometimes that can be really off track. Because the Spirit's leading is never going to contradict the Word of God no matter what you think or feel. God's Scriptures always will govern or should stand in judgment on our personal experiences in regard to what we are hearing or what we are feeling in terms of God's individual leading in our life. Please know that your feelings and those sense of leadings are imperfect and God's Word is perfect. So it should lead you to evaluate it against God's Word. And as you spend times in God's Word, things begin to change about those feelings you have and even those perspectives that you have held on to. In other words, God will always use His Word in personally leading us. Always. Seeking the Spirit in terms of counsel is not about giving, like, hoping God gives us some kind of extra biblical information to help us make a decision. It's really allowing, if you will, or 
uh, submitting yourself to the Spirit and allowing Him to actually apply biblical wisdom to your life. So when we talk about quenching the Spirit, what does that mean? Like, What do we mean like quench the Spirit? That's much less emotional, tickles, tingles, kind of spiritual weirdness than you think. Quenching the Spirit quite simply when you want to quench the Spirit, or the Bible says grieve the Spirit, or resist the Spirit, the Bible speaks about all these things. You quench the Spirit, grieve the Spirit, resist the Spirit when you reject what God's Word says. Pretty simple. The rejection of God's truth is the rejection of the Holy Spirit, the one that Jesus called the Spirit of truth who guides you into all truth. So we quench the Spirit. Don't quench the Spirit. In other words, read the Bible, believe the Bible, apply the Bible, live the Bible, share the Bible, or you will be quenching the Spirit. We quench the Spirit when we follow spirits of error because we haven't tested them. So many of us will do this accidentally, right? We will unfortunately, listen to whatever preacher is saying anything. We'll often read authors and we don't test it. We just kind of go, I like the sound of that. That feels good. You're in danger of following a spirit of error and quenching the spirit if you haven't tested it against what you know the spirit has already said. You realize that lies from the enemy don't feel or sound bad bad. They sound good. They sound attractive. They sound Oprah popular, right? We also quench the Spirit not only when we do not test and we fall spirits of error as a result, but when we do test and then we don't make every effort to follow the truth. Paul commends us not only to test for falsehood, but to hold fast as we determine what is good. And that means following the Apostle James' admonition to not just be hearers of the law, but doers. Don't just listen, but act. Now, that, that first part, the idea of the God using His Word and His Spirit working together is doing something to us. In many ways, I know we sit and we struggle and we go, well, I'm not growing the way I thought. I, I wish things were faster. I wish things were different, if you will. But as I stated in the beginning, becoming who we are in Christ is a slow process. It's sometimes and many times a painful process, an incremental process. And that's because this normal Christian life is a fixer-upper life. We are redeemed works in progress. And God uses His Word to progress us into greater levels of restoration. God instantly, right? Instantly, at salvation, at belief, He replaces our foundation. But that's just the beginning of the renovation project. Emphasis on His renovation project. 
Now, in verses 23 and 24, listen to what Paul said after he's talked about God's Word, after he's talked about don't quench the Spirit. Listen to what God is saying, he says. He says, verse 23, Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. That's an awesome phrase. God here is described as a God of peace. What this is referring to is that He is the one committed to completely restoring our relationship with Him. We were the hostile enemies. He made peace with us, and now He's bringing peace and wholeness to our lives and to our relationship with Him. He's doing it. Now, sanctification, this word that sanctify refers to this idea of sanctification. This is the act of God. The act of God of separating us from sin and setting us apart to the glory that He designed us to be. This is why restoration is such a great word because we're talking about being restored to who God designed us to be. And this is in somewhat an instantaneous act, right? The replacement of a foundation, but it's also a progressive series of actions that last an entire lifetime. I just purchased a cherry tree at Costco. I will plant that tree and it will probably not have fruit for like five years because that's typically how it goes for my fruit trees. But eventually it will grow. In time. By grace, God is taking us through this continuous renovation process that doesn't end until we return to Jesus or He returns to us. And it looks slow at times. Sometimes you don't see the fruit. Sometimes it it's, feels like, you know, gosh, that was a really bad season. I don't feel like I grew at all. That's normal. See, apart from Christ, we are like an old, abandoned um, meth house that squatters destroyed. Okay, so Matt, you want to go, what did God look like? When He saw me, what did I look like apart from Him? There you go. Like the house you drive by and go, oh. But He drives by and goes, oh, I can flip that baby, right? And He sees something else. And he comes and he purchases that house. He purchases it with the death of his son. And he says, this is my house now. This is under new ownership now. And I'm going to replace the foundation. And now I'm going to start this renovation project. And he doesn't just clean out the bad. That's how it starts. He starts filling it with the good. That's a long process. This isn't like, you know, Chip and Joanna Gaines, Jesus style, half an hour and it's done, right? It's not the way it works. He not only wants to make it livable, more than that, he wants to make it beautiful. And that means taking down walls at times. That means discovering sometimes rot that you may have not known that was there, but he did. And you're like, ah, I like that wall. He's like, no, that wall's got to come down. But it's structural. We'll replace it. But Paul is clear here. God is 
doing something to us. He is sanctifying us completely, it says. Every area of our life, right? It's not just the spiritual religious area. Every area of our life. And He is doing this completely. He is keeping us endlessly. Like, ownership never changes. He never rips into a closet and goes, oh gosh, I didn't know that they got in here. This is nasty. And goes, that's it. Back on the market. That's not how it happens. He's committed to it endlessly. Keeping us endlessly. There should be great comfort in that because guess what? You screw up and so do I. We fail. God has planned for our failure. He's planned for it. Dare I say, He expects it. But He has chosen us and He called us eternally. Not temporarily, eternally. And He is faithful to bring the good work that He began in us to completion. He is faithful. What if I'm not? He is faithful. What if my faith kind of wavers? He is faithful. Did He begin a good work or did you? He did. And He will bring it to completion. So sometimes we look at this normal Christian life and we're like, I can, what an impossible list for you. Yeah. You got no skills. We're talking about the master craftsman. The one who created you. I'm pretty sure he could take care of it. There is, however, this inescapable tension between our position, kind of our holiness before God, and, and then kind of how we practice that, right? Because we're like, well, I know I'm perfect, but gosh, I don't look perfect. And I say there's a tension because we ask ourselves, well, how does this all happen? Does, does God do all of it? Do I do all of it? And again, there's always two ditches. In one ditch, it's I'm going to let go and let God, and people believe they have zero responsibility to do anything regarding their behavior. I prayed the prayer. I'm saved. I don't got to do nothing. On the other side, there is, you know, those who say, well, it's all up to me. God gave me a good start, and then I got to do it. I got 100% responsibility to grow up in Christ. And um, usually what that results is is this swing between despair, I'm horrible and I can't do it, and pride, hey, look what I did. And the Scriptures honestly aren't really helpful. They are, but they aren't. Because they provide us a little bit of a paradox. And we don't like paradox. We like certainty. But you read passages like Philippians 2, 12-13 that says, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, there it is. I've got to work it out myself. For it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. What? Work it out because God's working. Okay. I don't know if I know what that means, but I think I know what that means. I have something to do. You know, it could be said to us, for those of us who are struggling, like, I feel like I should have grown more. I, think I, I feel like I should be more mature in Christ. It could be said this to you. Well, what have you done? That doesn't feel very good, I know. But what effort have you made? 
I think the better question maybe to focus on is why anyone ever makes any effort at all and why we should. Because effort comes from the right motivation. Several apostles, Paul is one, obviously Peter is another, but they all talk about make every effort. They say that. They go, make every effort to do good. You're like, okay. But they also will say in the same context or in a close context that that effort has to be motivated and empowered by God and His Word. That that's the only sustaining motivation that's going to get you going. Did you know that the Bible says that this is how the Spirit changes us? As This is why Paul says, don't quench the Spirit. Don't ignore God's Word. Listen to His Word. Why? Because that's how the Spirit works and that's how the Spirit renovates you. Let me prove it to you. 2 Corinthians 3.18 You should highlight, circle, star this verse. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, he says, And we all, including himself, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, speaking of Jesus, as we are beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed. So beholding, something's happening. We are being transformed into the same image. Who? Jesus. From one degree of glory to another, there's degrees, which means progression, which means incremental, which means slow at times, but forward. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. One pastor said it really well, we become what we behold. We become what we behold. So whatever effort we're making, it needs to begin with beholding Christ. We will rejoice always. We will pray always. We will give thanks always insofar as we are looking at Jesus always. How does that work? I don't know! It's mysterious! But the Bible says this is how it works. Oftentimes, we start with effort. I'm going to be thankful. I'm going to be joyful. Do work. Let's start with Jesus. How do I know that works? And this, I'm, I'm robbing this in my own version from another pastor who I thought described it so well. But I think you'll understand, like, when you behold awesomeness, especially something that you really want to do, you want to be awesome. I think of like soccer, right? I, I played a lot of soccer, loved soccer. And as a young person, I love to watch soccer. I love to watch really good players at soccer. And as you watch, now, fill in the blank, the baking show. I like that too, right? You watch the baking show or soccer or ballet, whatever your thing is that you enjoy. I know what happens when Kendra walks the baking show. And I'm so irritated because she can accomplish it. She watches and goes, I'm going to do that. <laughs> okay? And I can't figure out why Shane's not like 400 pounds, because seriously, she cooks so well and bakes so well, and she bakes all the stuff on the shelf. But you watch awesomeness. You're like, that's awesome. I want to do that. Watch soccer. Like, yeah. I, and guess what happens? I go out and I practice the things I see. Why? Because, oh, that looks, oh, that's awesome. 
This is how it works spiritually. When you look at Jesus, you look at the depth of His forgiveness, His thankfulness, His service, all these things, you begin to watch like, that's awesome! I'm, I want that! And you begin to change because of what you're beholding. That's how the Spirit works. And guess what? You behold Christ through this. It's what teaches you and shows you what Christ was like. That's the normal life of a Christian. Now, the last part of this talks about this other normal part that we struggle with. Because God restores our relationship with Him and then He restores our relationship with one another. And this is why the Bible is always talking about stir one another on towards good works because we are in this experience together until the day of the Lord comes. That God's Spirit is working through His Word and then it comes into us and it comes out of us and then begins to impact other people. That He is not just renovating a single household, He's renovating an entire community. A group of people that He says, I'm putting these little houses together into this city that's going to be where? On a hill to display to the world. He says, brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So he invites the church to pray for one another, to love one another, and to ultimately instruct one another. Showing us sanctification is, if you will, a communal experience. And the first thing he says is to pray. Paul believed in prayer. This is not the only time he actually requests this. In fact, if you read what Paul writes in most of his letters, more often than not, the only thing he actually asks of those he writes to is prayer. I think prayer is sometimes the last thing we ask for of one another. Maybe the last thing we expect because perhaps we think like, well, that's not asking for much. When that's actually asking for the greatest thing someone can actually do for you. But you have to believe that. But Paul here is not just merely asking for individuals to pray for him, right? This is a publicly read letter. So what is he actually saying? Church, pray for us together. In Romans 15, at the end of that chapter, he writes this similar sounding thing. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers. To strive together with me in your prayers. To God on my behalf. That I may be delivered from unbelievers in Judea, that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, and that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. To paraphrase one author I read, he said this way, the church is never more like the New Testament church than when it prays together. And would you like to know what the lowest attended event in our church is? Prayer. I'm not trying to say that as some kind of guilt thing. Feel guilty, then take it up with the Lord because I didn't name your name. Praying together has the ability to change us. And I'll admit, it's hard for me to pray with someone else. Ask my wife. 
I remember a friend of mine wrote a blog. Says he's, it was titled this, I don't mind praying, I just don't want to pray with you. It was actually quite funny, but sad at the same time. Because the Bible speaks actually of corporate prayer often as a means of sanctification. Because when you gather together with people and you, you go to the Lord together, guess what? You actually stop focusing on yourself and you begin to pray for others. And it lifts you. It inspires you. As you hear someone weeping about their children or their struggles, it actually impacts you. We need to pray together more as a church. We'll have opportunity next Sunday. I hope you're there. Sunday evening. 6.30. 6? Right? Oh, is it tonight? I meant to... No, it's not. This is the first week. It's the second week. There you go. Thank you, Joel. Bam! We would never have planned prayer in the Super Bowl. But if we had, we'd be here. Because we're good Christians. Last couple things. As a tool of sanctification, he also encourages us to kiss one another. Whoa! Hold on! Hold on! He makes this encouragement, right? Greet one another with a holy kiss. You know he does this like four times in different letters? And Peter does it too. You're like, well, a lot of kissing going on. Justin Martyr, not Justin the Martyr, Justin Martyr in the second century, he was a Christian apologist. He wrote that second century Christians that after prayers at their church gatherings, they would salute one another with a kiss. Men kissing men, women kissing women. So no Me Too in the second century. But they did that before communion. Isn't that interesting? Communion, the thing that binds the church together more than anything, they made sure they kissed one another prior to communion. This wasn't just a hug or handshake or a high five. It's not simply a kiss of affection. It's a holy kiss. A divine seal of commitment to one another. That you're telling the other person that we are set apart together. Without doubt, I think, um, this could freak out a lot of us who are not very touchy-touchy around here. The idea of a holy kiss, especially in Northwest culture, sounds terrifying. The idea sounds quite countercultural. That can't possibly be for today. And to legalist or require it would be kind of strange. But Paul's hope is that not that we will go and kiss one another, but perhaps we will work towards that end. And what we mean really is this is probably an area we should grow in because we all show up and we talk to the same people every week and we don't learn each other's names, let alone enough to give one another a holy hug or a holy kiss. There's a couple people who give me holy kisses here. You'd be surprised. I know there's a couple people who give me holy hugs and we'll take those. But whether we hug or kiss or shake hands or fist bump, whatever it is, Paul hopes that the church has a genuine affection for one another. A special affection for one another. Where we look at each other and we say, I'm so glad you're here. And I know you're broken and so am I. Praise Jesus for the grace that we both have. And lastly, he says, read this letter to everybody. And this is just just merely instruction. He says, I put you under oath to the Lord. Wow, that's pretty serious, Paul. 
He wants every person in the church to hear every word in this letter. He wants every person in the church to hear every word in this letter. This is a charge to the whole church. Because he's not just telling the elders. He says, church, make sure everyone reads this letter. Church, let us be sure we are directing one another towards the Word of God. Every young person, every old person, male, female, whatever. Church, you are not, I am not the only one responsible to teach here. We're called to instruct one another and direct each other towards the Word of God. I'll end with a quote that I put on Facebook that comes out of our discipleship theology group. It says, Many Christians never leave the first principles of the Gospel. Still spiritual infants, they must be bottle-fed with the same formula. When confronted at the door by a representative of another sect, they are helpless to give reason for the hope that is in them. On the basis of their faith, they are speechless. Yet, on the reasons for their choice of a house or a car, they can discourse at great length. The sinful negligence of even one member of the church causes the whole body to suffer. You have a responsibility to know the Word, to live the Word, and to instruct one another in the Word by how you live and what you say. It's not a new revelation of the Spirit that makes Christians grow any more than it's a new building that's going to help our church grow. It's only when every part of the body, that would be you and I, are working properly by walking in the Spirit, in obedience to His Word, intentionally, not perfectly, it is only then, as we speak the truth and love to one another, that we grow up together in Christ and become all that God has called us to be. The normal Christian life is that normal Christians live like Christ, loving one another, serving one another as those who are restored and are called to restore. Not because they have some pedigree or some great education or expertise or knowledge, but because they know the grace of Jesus Christ. That's the qualification. So, be qualified. Amen? Let's pray.